This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, 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 Elon Dubrovsky, and I was very lucky to be joined today by Harmon Dial, beat writer for the Vancouver Canucks, to talk about the Canucks. And it was a really fun interview. I definitely think you're going to like it. I know at the beginning I always say I think you're going to like it, but I mean, come on, have I been wrong? No, these have been great interviews, and Harmon Dial was no exception. This one was really fun. Before we get to that, let me, of course, mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. It is your top fantasy hockey website and resource. They're on top of everything. You could just check them out every day. They still got the daily ramblings, really smart writers over there, plus the tools over at Frozen Tools. Like I say, they are invaluable for me prepping the show and for me being successful in fantasy when we are actually playing fantasy hockey. So make sure you check it out, DauberHockey.com. But okay, I am ready now to cut over to my interview with Harmon Dial. So I really hope you like it. Here it is. All right, everybody. I am super excited to bring you this next Beat Writer interview. We are super lucky to be joined by Beat Writer covering the Vancouver Canucks over at The Athletic, or should I say Staff Writer. I'm actually kind of curious to know even what's the difference between the two, but here he is, Harmon Dial. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, uh, thanks for the warm welcome. Yeah, people were really excited when I said you were coming on. Sorry for that weird intro, but then I was just reading. Can you tell me actually, because I've been, you know, interviewing all these different writers that cover the different teams and we have like lead writer, staff writer, beat writer, like what's kind of the the general gist of what these jobs are? Yeah, they're more or less uh, all the same. The only one that has a real distinction that's meaningful is uh, senior writer. So that would be someone who is kind of a level up. Uh, They're more experienced. Uh, but beat writer, staff writer, it's basically interchangeable to me. We'll both apply, so. Oh, cool. Well, you're obviously one of the best. You really do a great job with the advanced stats, and we'll get into all of that. First, I just want to talk about the Canucks in general before getting into the specific players. This team, like I recall, I actually lived in Vancouver for a couple of years back in the you know, early 2010s, and they were a strong cup contender at the time. It was really fun. They had that series against Boston, followed by uh, some fun downtown Vancouver afterwards, which I wasn't a part of, by the way. But yeah, then you know, they kept on being a pretty decent contender for the next few years. They suffered a few first round losses up to 2015. And then the Canucks finally went into like full 
rebuild mode starting 2015-16. They spent a few years at the bottom of the league. But it looked like going into this season, like Jim Benning was finally ready to turn the page over on the rebuild. Like his recent first round picks of like Besser, Pedersen, Hughes were all looking great. And he really stocked the cupboards with reinforcements in the offseason with that big JT Miller trade. They signed Tyler Myers and Michael Furland. They re-signed Alex Edler. And lo and behold, the team put up their best season in the past five years. They sat tied with Nashville for the second wildcard spot at the time of the pause. Though like looking closer at the season, they were actually much better than just like a fringe playoff team most of the way. Like through February 1st, they were first in the Pacific Division. They were riding a five-game winning streak at the time. They had a record of 30, 18, and 4. But then I guess the wheels kind of came off a bit at the end. They only won six of their final 17 games. That's why they were fighting for this wildcard spot. So I guess to start things off, like, what do you think happened to the Canucks in that final month and a half? Like, there were some key injuries to Besser and Markstrom at the end. So can we just kind of blame it on that and, and expect the Canucks to be the dominant team they were for most of the year when this, like, play-in series versus Minnesota happens and next year? Or, or do you think there were some, like, weaknesses being exposed? Well, I think uh, when you examine most of the season for Vancouver, just because of how tight the uh, Western Conference and more specifically even the Pacific Division was, uh, even when the Canucks were first in the division momentarily in February, they had a very small cushion to hang on to. So uh, throughout the year, there wasn't really uh, any team in the Pacific that had a, a tight grip for most of the, most of the year. Uh, no team really established themselves as, as the top dog. And so Vancouver was always kind of in that uh, middle ground where they were among the teams contending for a wildcard spot, uh, contending for a divisional spot. Uh, obviously, they had a lot of things go their way through the first half of the season. Um, and, and over the course of January, they were really riding hot. I, I believe they strung off a, a pretty strong stretch of uh, something along the lines of 13 of, of, of 17 wins. So that was a peak. That, w- that was when they were on top of the division. But even then, they only had, uh, I want to say, a six-point lead on, on a playoff position total. Wow. So it wasn't a whole lot. The margins throughout the season were just so tight. Um, and I think what happened post-trade deadline was Obviously, Besser's injury hurts, but more importantly, Markstrom's really been the backbone of Vancouver's um, sort of team defense approach because defensively, they aren't a strong group. They allow a lot of chances. And uh, for Markstrom, he was just someone who was able to uh, make up and compensate for a lot of their defensive deficiencies. So when you sort of account for all of that, uh, and in Thatcher Demko, of course, he hasn't really been a starter at the NHL level before, so it was... Uh, a bit of a, a shock for him to be an everyday starter. And, and there were some growing pains through the first uh, few games. So really, it was just a little bit of an adjustment period for the team uh, without Markstrom. But yeah, b- before the season was suspended, it was uh, a complete 50-50. But that's ultimately where I think their uh, true talent level, um, as far as the roster they've uh, constructed, really is is that sort of fringe bubble uh, tier uh, heading heading into this season, and then we'll see how the team's uh, construction changes uh, heading into next year. Yeah, okay, very interesting. I just recently talked to Murat Atesh about the Winnipeg Jets, and it was sort of a similar story where the defense wasn't that good, and Connor Hellebuck sort of stood on his head and really helped carry the team. So it sounds like you're saying Jacob Markstrom sort of played a similar role in Vancouver, which... absolutely. Which is very interesting because while Connor Hellebuck is under contract and is expected to be on the Jets for a while, 
Jacob Markstrom is a pending unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. So I was planning on asking this later, but since like we're bringing him up, like, do you have any sense of what the plan is for Jacob Markstrom, who did just have this amazing season? Like he's always been a, a solid goalie, he took over as the Canucks starter a couple seasons ago. He had like a couple seasons with a 912 save percentage. But this year, this contract year, uh, he really fit the stereotype of a player in a contract year because he like upped his game 918 save percentage. Like we've said, a big part of why the Canucks had that fantastic start to the year. And do you think that the plan is to bring Markstrom back? Or are they going to have to just be ready to ride like Thatcher Demko and I guess Michael DiPietro as their goalies? Well, well, short-term success is definitely important for this management group. uh, Just as far as the fact that uh, they've had quite a leash in in trying to manage this rebuild. And uh, really the pressure is going to be on the expectation, the, the sort of bar. Uh, is going to continue to rise. And, and that means that they're going to have to make the playoffs next year. And and obviously Markstrom, given how important he was to the club, arguably the team's MVP, I think they're going to make every effort to try and re-sign him just because of how vital he was. And, and not only on the ice, but off of it too. He he really fits into that core group of players. Uh, he's he's a leader in that locker room, someone that a lot of the younger players look up to. And, and he's just an integral piece of sort of the culture and the identity of that club. So for me, I think they're going to make every effort they can to re-sign him. I think he's their top priority out of all of their unrestricted free agents, which includes Markstrom, which includes Tyler Toffoli, which includes uh, Chris Tanev uh, as well. Right. Yeah, I guess if they plan to win soon, then it would be a bit risky, I guess, to go with Thatcher Demko, who had a really good start to the year. I remember there was that week when Markstrom took off for personal reasons and Demko had these like three amazing games. I think it was like five of his first seven starts. He won those games. All of those first seven starts were quality starts, but then he did sort of slip a little bit, though he barely played for a lot of the year because Markstrom was just doing so well until that stretch at the end when Markstrom was injured and Demko was like, Okay, I guess not that great. Letting three plus goals in those last eight games that he played. And I'm curious, like, even forgetting about Markstrom, because if they sign him, I imagine it's going to be only for a year or two. A lot of people are wondering, like, what's the plan for the future in Nets? Just because I think forever people have been talking about Thatcher Demko as the future of the Canucks. But recently I've been hearing a lot of buzz about Michael DiPietro being the guy that maybe they're going to end up deciding to lean on. He just... Uh, had his first pro season in Utica. He went 21-11-2 with a 9.08 save percentage. And I guess there's the whole Seattle expansion thing coming up where they're not going to be able to protect necessarily both Markstrom and Demko if they re-sign Markstrom. So do you have a sense right now of who the Canucks are planning to lean on after Markstrom or is it still up in the air? I, I definitely think it's still up in the air. And um, again, as you mentioned, a lot of that is going to be determined based off of the Seattle expansion draft. And Really, in having spoken to Jim Benning, I my sense of uh, my sense of the situation is they're still in an evaluation mode when it comes to Demko and trying to figure out what exactly is his ceiling. And, and I think they deep down do believe that he could be a starter. It's about when exactly is he going to be able to make that transition, and if it coincides exactly with when when they still want to have Markstrom around. Well, they obviously really believe in Markstrom too. So if that's the case then at some point they are going to be pressed to make a decision. And, and that's where there's a lot of uncertainty because with the expansion draft, if Demko puts in a solid year, he's going to be a prime candidate. And, and maybe uh, the Canucks, they're, they're going to have to weigh their options. And a lot of it depends on how the marketing contract looks too. Because if they can structure it in a way where, um, let's say, and this is something my, my colleague Thomas Trance brought up, was if you sort of load up that, um, that next year, with, with a July 1st signing bonus, 
maybe that uh, dissuades Seattle from from wanting to take um, a, a Markstrom in his early 30s, even if he has a decent year. So there are a lot of different circumstances that could play out here. It could There's a million different ways. And I think the Canucks are really open to all options. And um, even when you talk about DiPietro, again, really solid professional season in Utica. Uh, it's always great to see goaltenders make that transition from junior to AHL hockey seamlessly. And he, I believe he was the youngest goalie, uh, regular goalie in the league there. So that's obviously a very encouraging sign. But uh, I don't think the Canucks, even internally, are, are too set uh, as far as both their short and long-term goaltending plan. Uh, I think they're just kind of going to wait to see how uh, a lot of this unfolds. Right. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. We got to figure out what's going to happen with Markstrom first and foremost. It'll be a very interesting offseason. There are some other UFA goals. I guess if Markstrom wants to go, they could try to go for like a Robin Leonard or someone like that, Hudobin, who knows. So yeah, that'll be really fun to follow. Uh, so moving over to the forwards, obviously one big reason I'd imagine why the Canucks are expecting themselves to continue to be a playoff team and maybe to even be a contender is the emergence of Elias Pettersson. He's been like so awesome since he joined the league a couple seasons ago. He had that amazing 66 points in 71 games rookie season that was a 76 point pace got him the calder trophy and like that season the one sort of thing that was i guess a little bit concerning at least to my co-host brian and myself he did have a 19.4 shooting percentage that year so we thought oh maybe that's you know that'll be a little unsustainable maybe he'll dip a little bit but he totally made up for it he had a he did have a three percent drop in his shooting percentage almost but he upped the shot counts which is the best way to fight against an unsustainable shooting percentage and he ended this season again 66 points but in three fewer games and while an 80 point pace like Elias registered as this season is something most players will never accomplish I obviously do get the sense that most people think this is just like the start of what we're going to be expecting from Pedersen moving forward so do you concur that he still has another gear and is going to improve going into his age 22 season and like if yes like I'm just curious like how high of a ceiling should we be expecting like are we looking at someone who's going to be potentially competing for the Art Ross in the next few seasons or am I like getting too ahead of myself because we have we have a lot of Canucks fans who to contact us and they're super high on Pedersen absolutely and, and for every reason they should be because uh, what Pedersen has accomplished at um, during his age 20 and in his age 21 season it's really remarkable there aren't many forwards around the league uh, who've produced at this pace and, and most of them when they do sort of graduate into their early 20s sort of their age 23 age 24 season which is their statistical prime uh, that's when you really stay, see them take off offensively and hit that next stride and absolutely I think there's another gear there for Pedersen um, we obviously saw a lot of growth um, in more subtle areas I'd say in his 2A game if you look at a lot of the underlying data um, and that is, is is just another pillar of, of strength for him when, when you're talking about a potential franchise center moving forward. But to me, no doubt, I, I just look at the way he creates offense and his versatility. I mean, look at his rookie season. So much of his offense came from that one-timer, came off the rush, and defense has adjusted to that. And in spite of that, he continued to find new ways to create offense. So whether that was creating chances off the forecheck, uh, he, he got some rebound goals. He just he's finding different ways to score, and to me, that's a sign that a player can adapt. Because if you can adapt to what the defense um, is is trying to take away from you, to me, then you're a multi-dimensional offensive threat. And those types of players are the ones um, that that aren't flat aren't flashed in the pan type producers. So to me, I absolutely think there's uh, another step in the ceiling. Um, as far as how high, I mean, that's only Patterson himself will know because we know that. The, the way he's wired, he is 
he's a perfectionist. You talk about the way he improved on his shot in his draft year. That was a weakness of his. And for him to, he went to uh, Vakwa of the SHL and he mastered that technique all by himself and turned that shot, which was initially perceived as weakness, into one of the best wristers in the NHL, one of the best one-timers in the NHL. So to me, the way that this guy can improve um, any any part of his game that he wants to work on, it's it's a sign of an elite talent. And so to me, I don't even want to try and put a ceiling on uh, on what type of player he can be. To me, I think he's going to be, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's in that uh, Austin Matthews type tier where these guys are knocking on the door uh, right behind someone like Connor McDavid uh, when people discuss the best players uh, in the National Hockey League. That's amazing. You know, when you were describing him just now and how he's able to pick a part of his game that he wants to improve and then do it, it's a lot like what Jesse Marshall was saying when we were talking about the Pittsburgh Penguins and Sidney Crosby. And so it's kind of cool to kind of hear yeah. the same compliment there, that he could just sort of pick that part of his game that he wants to improve and then make it happen. Exactly. It's, it's a really special uh, ability. And it, it comes with, I think there are two components of it. One is just the, the, the sheer work ethic. And um, obviously, to get to the NHL, every player works hard. I think that's uh, that that you can, that's understandable. That's obvious. But for the players that go the extra mile, and I remember talking to his strength and conditioning coach uh, a little while back, and when he played in Vacua, we're talking about every practice, shooting, 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 and and that's just the type of commitment that other players don't have. And it's not necessarily because they're lazy. It's just because Pedersen has in his mind that determination to be the best player he sees the vision he thinks it's possible um, whereas I mean it it brings me back to what Tremont Green once said um, of the Golden State Warriors which um, I remember it was a press conference and it was because he I think he called himself the greatest defender of all time and, and he had a really strong speech about how if you don't have that belief that you're the best, that you're going to be the best, if you put your work in, you're not going to have that work ethic to actually, or you're not going to have that drive to actually achieve it. And if you don't have that mindset, you're, you're, you're not going to send to that, to that rarefied heights. So I see that same thing with Patterson in that um, he believes internally that the sky is the limit. And because of that, he's willing to put in the work that other players aren't. And then second, just the way that he's able to pick apart his game um, and self-analyze, that is really special as well. So those are two components that, for me, stand out. Um, he's just wired differently than other players, just the best way that I can put it. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel like it was so fast from when he started as a rookie to when we were talking on the podcast, not only about how great Pedersen was, but you know, we're a fantasy podcast, we started recommending players like, oh, this guy's on Pedersen's line, you want to get him. And like, usually it takes a a couple seasons for a player to be like that. Now it's like anyone playing with Pedersen, you know, they're going to be good. And we'll get to one right now. I guess one of his common line mates over the past couple of years has been Brock Besser, who was looking to be on pace for his best season yet. Through 45 games, he sat with 43 points, 16 goals. That's a 78-point pace, 30-goal pace. But then, like, all of a sudden on January 12th, something flipped. I was just looking at the game logs. He started, from that point on, he was ice cold. In his next 11 games, only two assists, plus 
I don't know if it was like something that he was doing that coach Travis Green didn't like or what, but he got bumped all the way down to the third line, not even the second line to play with Horvat. He was bumped to play with Antoine Roussel and Adam Godet on the third line. There were a bunch of games where he was seeing less than 15 minutes of ice time, well down from his, you know, around 19 minutes per game that he was playing before that. And then, of course, to make matters worse, uh, not his fault, but Besser suffered that rib injury that caused him to miss the rest of the season, save for that one final game on March 10th before the pause. So I guess kind of like my question about the Canucks in general, like what was going on at the end there for Besser before he got hurt? And like going into next season, should we be expecting him to be like the 70 point guy that he was looking like before that weird stretch? Or should we be concerned that, you know, there's actually something maybe wrong with his game that I don't know, other teams were able to figure out or something? Yeah, I'd say it was definitely a little bit of an up and down year for Besser because we saw him. Uh, produce more points. The, the the goal scoring wasn't really there if you, if you compare both to his rookie and sophomore seasons. But I think he improved his all around game pretty significantly. Um, and, and the type of player Besser is, he's just he he's a he's a hot and cold player, very streaky. Um, someone who when he's feeling it, and I always go back to the stretch that he had in his rookie year, where for a while there he was among the NHL's leading goal scorers. When he's feeling it, when he's on, he is really confident. And he's just letting that shot go. He's a volume shooter. When when he's not feeling it, you can tell a little bit. And, and when he goes through these dry stretches, and, and it's the same thing for a lot of goal scorers, he seems a, a, a little more hesitant to shoot. And I think that's what you saw out of Besser uh, through the second half of the year. I'm not exactly sure how his shot totals look, but then... You you further compounded, I think, maybe that confidence wavering with the fact that he was bumped to the third line. I don't think that uh, really benefited him. Um, I think it it would have been better for him to stick on that line, and, and eventually he would have found his groove anyway. But um, I I just think that's what happened. It's 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 a lot of the natural ebbs and flows throughout a season. You get hot and cold. Um, I wouldn't be too worried about it personally. To me, um, uh, I I still see a, a legitimate first line forward, someone who. Uh, if you put him next to Pedersen, can put up 70 points. The question for me really becomes um, if, if if there is something to be concerned about his health because he hasn't played uh, a full season. He's suffered through injuries in each of his uh, three campaigns so far. But other than that, other than that, I, I don't think there's too much to be worried about. I think he did an excellent job of um, improving his de- defensive game, a lot of details, a lot of subtle areas that uh, maybe don't show up on the score sheet. Yeah, it's, regarding his health, it's pretty impressive. Like, obviously, it's it's sad that he keeps on getting these injuries, but I remember he had that really scary injury in his first season. I remember, he, like, what was it? He like, ran into a gate that someone had opened on the yeah. ice. And, like, that, that looked really bad. And then he was, I guess, fine for the next year. And then, like, this season, this injury that he had, everyone was saying that he was going to be, like, out for the year. They, they traded for Tyler Toffoli to basically take his spot. And then out of nowhere, he was, like, back playing well ahead of schedule. So he's kind of like a, a Wolverine or something, I guess. So at least if you're worried about him health-wise, it seems like he's good at healing. Yeah, that was... Uh, the, the rib one was a little bit weird because um, the organization didn't really... There, were, there was a lot of mixed messaging in their timeline, so there wasn't a whole lot of clarity on it. But, uh, but yeah, there seemed that at one point as if um, he might miss uh, the entire season, and then obviously he came back. Um, he came back early, early March, second week of March, right before the shutdown. 
And so, yeah, and you said that the main thing to be concerned about or like the thing is as long as he's playing with Pedersen, you expect him to be like a 70-point guy and you're not too worried. But that is my follow-up question for you about Besser. Like, do you have a sense of how Travis Green plans to use Besser like for this series versus Minnesota and then beyond going into next year? Because like, like I said, he spent the majority of the season on this like stacked top line with Pedersen and JT Miller, but then he had that stretch playing on the third line. And then in that one game, I don't know how much we could read into one game back before the pause, but he was playing on the second line with Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson because Tyler Toffoli had taken his spot on the top line. So if we have this playoff series, I guess it's hard to speculate about next year because we don't know if Toffoli is going to come back. But like for this playoff series against Minnesota, do you think Besser is going to be centered by Pedersen or Horvat or, you know, worst case, like, I don't know, Antoine Roussel? Yeah, I right now it's it's anyone call for, for who lines up. I think really um, whoever doesn't line up between Toffoli and, and Besser with Pedersen will end up with Horvat and... Um, and obviously it was Toffoli before the stretch, but regardless of who starts there, I think they're just going to roll with whatever combination clicks right away or, or gains the, the, the most chemistry uh, from the start. I think for Bester, the, the type of player that he is, he's obviously not uh, a great skater, so he's not going to create a lot in transition. Uh, he's what I'd call sort of uh, a goal poacher, uh, a clinical finisher. He's someone who's just, who you want you want a play driver next to him who can attract a lot of the defensive defense's attention who can uh, do a lot of the puck transportation through the neutral zone who can set up a lot of the plays and then Besser is someone who just lurks in the shadows um, and can be the trigger man and so regardless of whether he's with Pedersen or Horvat I think he has the ability to produce a lot offensively um, you talk about his stretch with Gaudet and Roussel. I don't think that's the right fit for him just because um, I don't think Gaudet's quite there yet when it comes to driving play and, and being a dynamic offensive player. I, I, I like a lot of his tools. I just don't think that uh, I, 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 I much prefer Horvat or Pedersen's skill set next to Besser. And, and so for me, as long as he's playing with one of those guys, I think he'll be in a relatively good position. Yeah, that's true. Like, Bo Horvat's pretty underrated. Like, you know, obviously, it seems like the best spot for anyone is going to be playing on the top line with Elias Pettersson, but playing with Bo Horvat probably isn't too bad. Uh, but one guy who was playing with Pettersson all season long wasn't Brock Besser, but was JT Miller, who was such a great acquisition for the Canucks. Like, actually, at the start of this uh, podcast, when I was lauding Pettersson for his amazing season, one thing I failed to mention, he didn't lead the Canucks in scoring this season. The, the scoring leader was JT Miller, who Jim Benning acquired in exchange for Marek Mazanik, a third and this conditional first pick and I recall at the time of the trade like some people were throwing a bit of shade at the deal like you know JT Miller is decent but he was coming off a 47 point season with the lightning he averaged less than 15 minutes of ice time in that season only took 108 shots in 75 games it didn't like jump off the page it's like someone necessarily worth a first round pick but Miller took like full advantage of this change of scenery he found himself like we said on the top line as well as the top power play he saw over 20 minutes of ice time on average per game and exploded for this career high 27 goals and 72 points in 69 games that's an 86 point pace if they would have played all 82 games he also threw 123 hits won like 400 plus faceoffs. he was like in, as far as fantasy goes this guy was a multi-category stud so like is this a situation where Benning like thought he was trading for say like a 50-ish point player and then got lucky you know like he was just expecting to get this uh you know decent JT Miller and then ended up getting a, a star player or did you think he should take some credit as like seeing the, this potential of what he was able to do 
Well, absolutely. I mean, anytime you um, hit a home run, you uh, you deserve credit for that. And whether or not Jim Benning actually thought that um, he'd be a 70-point guy, um, who knows? I mean, only Benning himself would be able to answer that question. Um, I think certainly there was a lot in his profile that suggested he uh, was a top six forward that would complement uh, the existing personnel really well with respect to his playmaking ability um, as, as far as someone who can distribute the puck um, and sort of uh, carry it on the cycle, support play high in the offensive zone. Um, and what that did was it kind of just freed up space for guys like Pedersen and, and Besser. You watch him, um, and obviously the, the goal total stand out, but uh, to me, what, what I found really impressive was just how many plays he created off of the cycle and, and just using his combination of pace um, and puck protection. Like he, he does such an exceptional job of drawing the defense's attention, warding players off the puck. He's got, um, he's got one hand on the stick, one hand on the opposition. Um, and because of that, it opens a lot of space for other players. So uh, really fan- fantastic addition when you talk about the team sort of taking a dip through the second half of uh, the year or, or maybe sort of the last quarter of the year post-trade deadline right before the suspension, he was really someone who offensively, he was carrying the load at even strength um, on the power play, uh, just, just really leading the team in, in, in so, many different, so many different parts of the game. He was even killing penalties. Um, I just think he relished the opportunity here to be uh, a leg- legitimate leader, a little bit marginalized in Tampa Bay, and, and for him to have the opportunity to step up into a bigger role. Um, obviously, it doesn't hurt to, to play alongside Elias Pedersen, but absolutely, there was a lot to like about his skill set. Just um, I, I don't think anyone could have foreseen him exploding this much offensively, though. Yeah, like I'm curious to know now moving forward, like you wrote an article on The Athletic recently, like trying to just figure out where does he rank among the NHL's elite forwards. And I, I guess I don't want to give away the article, but like it was pretty darn high in the end. And like, do you, should we expect him to like continue to get like this top deployment that he got and to continue producing as like a point per game guy or at least like a 70 plus point player for the foreseeable future? Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be pretty comfortable expecting him to produce in the 70-point range if, if, if he slots in alongside Pedersen and continues skating uh, a lot of minutes and stays healthy. Because really, if you if you look at even his scoring pace in, in Tampa Bay, I, I can't remember exactly what his all-situations pace was off the top of my head, but I remember if you extrapolated just that scoring pace that he had in Tampa and multiplied that by the by, by the minutes he played this year, so you're, you're accounting for the difference in ice time, even just off that alone, he, he would have been producing at a 60-65 point, point clip. Somewhere around that general neighborhood, Like he, he would have had a career year, um, even if he was producing at the rate he was in Tampa Bay, which wasn't necessarily um, prolific. So that's to say that a lot of his um, counting stats have been inflated by the fact that he's getting much bigger opportunity. Uh, so I think it's sustainable, um, that, and a lot of people are going to ask what was, was Miller riding off of Patterson's coattails. And I think when you examine the percentage of points that Patterson and Miller shared, it wasn't very high. I believe it was 42, 43%, which if you look at a lot of the league's top 20 uh, point producers, doesn't leap off, um, out of the pages as, as something unsustainable and same sort of thing with its underlying numbers. Shooting percentage is a tad high. Um, on-ice shooting percentage could come down too, but there isn't anything, there isn't a serious red flag that indicates that uh, he could be in line for regression. So um, I'm pretty bullish in, in projecting him moving forward. 
Nice. Yeah. And even if he does like regress a little bit with an 86 point pace, you have room to fall and still be like a 75 plus point player in the league. Uh, So he's, of course, not the only player who's recently come to the Canucks and sort of taken his career to another level. So let's do a couple more now. Uh, One player who very recently joined that we brought up before is Tyler Toffoli, because back when it looked like Brock Besser was going to be out for the season, Jim Benning swung a deadline deal with the Kings. They got Toffoli for Tim Schaller, Tyler Madden and a second round pick. Uh, And much like with Miller to Foley, he'd shown glimpses of having like star potential before coming to Vancouver. He had one really good season with the Kings, a 58 point breakout back in 2015, 16, but overall he hadn't really panned out in LA. Uh, But just like with Miller to Foley got right on the top line with Elias Pettersson and Miller. And he also got on the top power play and he produced at a point per game pace for the 10 games that he did play with Vancouver before the pause, six goals and four assists. So Obviously, it's hard to say such a small sample size, but from the small amount that you saw Toffoli in Vancouver, do you think he has the potential to be as good there as this 10-game sample indicated? Because I I do sometimes think that LA isn't exactly known for being like an offensive powerhouse, so it makes sense that Toffoli wasn't able to produce there, especially once he wasn't playing with Andre Kopitar. So maybe anyone who had written him off were like a little bit premature? Yeah, absolutely. I remember writing about him in, in, in the summer um last summer that is 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 someone who i believe he only had 34 points last year and there were just a lot of signs in his underlying profile that said uh this guy's been extremely unlucky and he makes sense as a potential by low candidate so especially if you look at the kings um he played a lot of his minutes with jeff carter who as we know has sort of declined as he's hit his mid-30s so he he wasn't really in a position to succeed in la um comes out of Vancouver and and he clicks right away and and a lot of it is because um, I think number one the power play setup was suited perfectly for him as a right shot in kind of that um, in, in kind of that bumper role um, and then obviously at at even strength you really saw him find a little bit of in, instant chemistry there with Patterson so from my perspective is he going to be a point, be a point per game player? Is he is he going to have the type of impact JT Miller had? I'm a little bit skeptical on that, just because his track record is a lot more established, and I don't think that Toffoli is necessarily that dynamic on his own. But could he be, say, uh, a, a someone you can rely on for 50, 55, maybe even sixty points? Sure, I think that um, we obviously saw really in his career when he had that breakout year that he has that type of potential in the right circumstances. And and the only thing I'd say is in this 10-game sample, you do have to be a little bit wary about um, uh, about the sample size and, and, and about the um, and, and a little bit of the, the luck that was at play there. I think some of that definitely helps, but I, I, I like the fit. I think that there's uh, there's something to, to work there long-term. And um, no question, I, I think you can reasonably project him as a as a legitimate top six forward moving moving into the future and and for vancouver one of the biggest questions is going to be whether uh, or not they're going to uh have the cap space to be able to resign him yeah i guess so much depends on first of all if they could resign jacob markstrom and then how much money they'll have left over have you heard anything from either the canucks side or the like tyler Toffoli camp in terms of like do they want to bring him back or is it at this point even like too early like they only saw 10 games out of him and maybe we'll want to see what happens in this playoff series before we decide like how much either side wants to return yeah i think uh to fully in, in, in his agent only had good things to say um uh, about vancouver and, and from vancouver's perspective uh, obviously if they can continue to get that type of production and we'll see through the playing series as well 
um, uh, I think they they would be inclined to to try and bring him back to solidify that uh, right wing top six. If if you have Besser and and Toffoli as your two right wingers, that's one hell uh, of a group to to sort of build around on on that right side. So um, it's a bit early to tell, just because there's so much uncertainty. We don't know where the cap's going to be at. Uh, we don't know what what uh, what Toffoli would command. Uh, potentially get from other teams and, and how that would stack up against what the Canucks could potentially offer. Um, and then, of course, trying to figure out where Markstrom's uh, slotting in. So uh, very early to tell uh, whether or not the Canucks will actually be able to retain him. But I think both sides are uh, going to make some sort of effort to see if there's uh, a reasonable deal that makes sense for both sides. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, obviously, I don't know anything, but I'd imagine like Toffoli after being in LA, not ha- getting to play with Kopitar and having to play, like you said, with like an aging Jeff Carter, you'd think he would jump with the chance to get either Elias Pettersson or Bo Horvat as his long-term centerman. But I guess obviously there's lots of good situations in the league that he can try to go for. Uh, so I guess let's go, I guess a tier down, but still a player who has turned his career around since coming to Vancouver. And that's another former King in Tanner Pearson, who back like a year ago in the 2019 trade deadline another trade that Jim Benning pulled off by the way I'm starting to get the feeling like Jim Benning is like good at at trades just from I don't know I'd be curious to know actually in general what the uh census of Vancouver okay let me let me just finish what this was so in 2019 he sends Eric Goodbranson over to the Penguins in exchange for Tanner Pearson and Pearson had one good season with the Kings kind of like to fully uh 24 goals and 44 points in 2016-17 which is decent I guess but aside from that he'd never topped 20 goals or 40 points until this past season uh, because Pearson, along with these other acquisitions we've discussed, got a role in the top six alongside Bo Horvat for pretty much the entire season. And it seemed like he and Horvat played pretty well together. They both put up career-high point paces. Horvat with a 63-point pace, Pearson with a 53-point pace. Of course, Horvat had that extra opportunity for points by playing on the top power play. Uh, the third piece on that line shifted a bunch of times throughout the season from like Erickson to Vertanen, Levo. Uh, but it seems like Coach Green likes Pearson Horvat as a tandem they had him joined at the hip the whole time so yeah I guess maybe before we get into Pearson what do you think of Jim Benning and you know he traded for Toffoli traded for Pearson he traded of course for JT Miller does he is he like kind of a little bit of a hero right now in Vancouver or is he I don't know it's hard to imagine a a fan base really liking their GM (laughs) at least in Toronto here it doesn't seem like you hear too many people lauding GMs too often yeah he's he's very divisive is 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 what I'd say um because Yes, his his recent track record um, from from a post scouting uh, perspective has been has been spot on. It's been a lot better, but um, his early years were uh, they 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 had a lot of blemishes. I mean, whether you talk about, for example, the Pearson for the Branson swap, the initial trade for Kid Branson, of course, was uh, was a disaster in sending McCann and uh, the thirty third pick in in twenty sixteen over. Um, the the trade for Brandon Sutter hasn't worked out. Right. Um, obviously signing Louis Erickson, um, and then then even this offseason, the Tyler Myers signing was very controversial. So uh, I think you're definitely seeing a trend where he's he's improved a lot over the past 12 to 18 months uh, with a lot of his uh, his his transactions, but um, it's still up in the air. And I think a lot of fans are frustrated uh, because on the one hand, there is this. Uh, you see the nucleus really emerging where 
you have these young pieces that you can build around sort of these franchise cornerstones and, and Pedersen and Hughes and Besser and to be able to add Miller and Horvat, a lot of excellent core pieces to build around. But it seems as if um, that's being undermined by these overpaid pieces in, in sort of your, in sort of their bottom six. So because of that, um, I think uh, he's kind of split the fan base uh, has Jim Benning and, um, very controversial figure both ways. People, people either love him or hate him. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Obviously. Yeah. I was a bit biased by recency. I, I completely forgot about that, uh, Louis Erickson signing, which I think I re- recently read an article by Dom Lushishin, like ranking some of the worst free agent signings of all time. And Erickson yeah. was there. So obviously yeah, that is a blemish to say the least, but okay. Back to Tanner Pearson. What do you think about how he's fit in on the Canucks and how he's looked playing with Horvat on the second line? Do you think that this is a spot he'll be able to hold through next season as well? Or do you think he's sort of like a placeholder there until some of the upcoming prospects come in? Well, I don't see anyone uh, coming up on that left wing who could realistically displace him. So I think that combination is more or less going to be joined at the hip. Uh, because you look at how that Horvat line has been deployed. It's been kind of used in, in many instances in in a heavy sort of matchup type role, which has freed up the Pedersen line to 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 go up against uh, softer competition and, and take advantage of that. So, because of that, Pearson fits with Horvat in the sense that he uh, he's got a, a two way sort of game to him that is very mature, very reliable. Uh, you know what you're getting from him in terms of the details of his game. You're you're not really rolling the dice and taking a risk by deploying him. Um, against the other team's top players. And then, of course, he has added uh, much-needed secondary scoring, not only even strength, but also in the second unit power play. So for me, I don't see why, any reason um, why the club should split up that combination. It's really just about uh, who's going to be that that uh, that third um, forward to join them. And obviously now with Toffoli and Besser, um, both in the lineup, that, uh, that that question becomes a lot easier to solve. Yeah, it's looking like a very formidable top six for this play-in series against Minnesota and moving forward if the playoffs happen. And then we'll have to see, obviously, if Toffoli comes back next year or if there will be an opening in the top six. There have been some players over the last couple of years that have sort of come in for short stretches and then left and we've been excited about on the podcast. Like, for example, I recall even this season, there was a stretch where Jake Vertanen got on the top line to play with Patterson and JT Miller. Josh Levo, like I said, uh, has had some opportunities both on the second line and the top line. Are either of these guys players that we should think might have a surprise breakout in them at some point? Or do you think Vertanen and Levo are people... Well, Vertanen's a restricted free agent, but I assume they'll bring him back. Like Any sense of something more coming from these guys at some point? I think Vertanen and... and well, Levo, for starters, just with, uh, with the age that he's at, I think more or less he is what he is, which is yeah. to say that he's a, a quality sort of, in my opinion, I, I think he's the type of player who you love to have on your third line if you're trying to build a, a legit contender. Um, and, and he can chip in with valuable secondary scoring. Um, again, a lot of the same characteristics as Pearson in that uh, he's really good along the walls, really good on the forecheck, uh, and, and, and someone you can trust offensively. Um, and then with respect to his his deployment, it's why he's been able to shuttle up and down the lineup and, and really be used in, in a variety of different roles. You compare you compare him to Vertanen, I think Vertanen has more offensive pop. The issue is Travis Green has had some reservations deploying him against the other team's uh, top players because he doesn't trust him defensively. And, and it goes back to a lot of the details of his game, 
um, as far as picking pucks up properly off the wall, uh, picking up assignments away from the puck. He just, his defensive impact takes uh, a lot away from what he delivers offensively. And it's why Green has been reluctant to use him in the top six capacity. And I think that's ultimately why uh, I'm less optimistic on him potentially breaking out, especially when um, I look at a lot of the underlying factors. And I wrote about this in January, but uh, when he was on that sort of near 50-point pace, there were some factors in, in terms of his individual points percentage, in terms of his, sh- his shooting percentage, that suggested that uh, he was getting a little bit ahead of himself in terms of production, that uh, he may be in for regression. Uh, he had a little bit of that through the second half of the season. It was cold uh, to close out the year. So uh, to me, I think, I think he more or less is what he is, uh, someone who can you, can you can throw into your middle six and inject some offense, plus size, plus speed, good shot. Uh, but ultimately someone who doesn't have the two-way profile to be trusted in, uh, in a top six role, unless there are injuries. Right. So I guess he might get there every once in a while, but not someone we could expect yeah. to sit there long-term. Uh, Travis Green is an interesting coach. Also, there's like been players that have been in the top six and then like completely got overlooked to the point where they're not even on the team. Like uh, Nikolai Goldobin, I remember a couple of years ago, was playing with Elias Pettersson and Besser for a stretch. And then this year he didn't even make the team. I see he actually had a good season in Utica. He had 50 points in 51 games. Also Sven Berchi, who had been there for a while, somewhere in the top six playing with, usually with Horvat like he didn't even make the team this year got a couple games in because of injuries uh maybe this is digging too far down the barrel but like are either of these guys people that we can expect to come back at some point or are they pretty much done in terms of being a contributor on the Canucks well Goldobin I believe he sent in Russia so you can officially cross him off the list and and Berchi I, I think it's very unlikely I okay. think we've more or less seen the last of him maybe you see him in the odd game if if the team's really pressed on the injury front but um, I don't think he, he has much in the way of a long-term future in Vancouver. That's fair. And I don't know how much you know about what's going on in the KHL, but I've, of course, got to ask you about the Canucks' most recent first-round pick in Vasily Podkolzin, who they took 10th overall in 2019. Uh, is it just a matter of time before he's going to come over to the NHL and get a shot to make the team? I'm seeing on Elite Prospects that he didn't make much of an offensive impact with Ska St. Petersburg this last season, but he had a solid World Junior Championships, five points in seven games. What's uh, the sense right now about this pick and how excited Canucks fans and management are for him to come over? Yeah, I think I think fans and management are both excited, and they should be because you look at uh, Pod Colson's profile and, and what he does really well. Uh, you've got to remember that the KHL um, is is one of the toughest leagues for for young players, and um, and and Pod Colson is also one of the younger players amongst that uh, 2019 draft class. So for him to um, come in there and and for the for the first half of the season, he struggled, obviously, offensively, went pointless for many, many games. Uh, a lot of that was because he was sort of the, the 13th forward. And a lot of games, he averaged, he, he'd play a few shifts, and, and that's it. And so I believe it was through the first half of the season, he averaged like five or six minutes a game. So really nothing in the way of opportunity. And then coming back from the World Junior Championships, uh, the u20 players that he had success with at that tournament they also both play for scott so coming back from that tournament the the club decided to reunite them in sort of this uh sheltered scoring young uh bottom six line and and that's where pod colson really thrived through the second half of the season um he was scoring at a really encouraging clip Uh, and not to mention the fact that when you look at it into a lot of the two-way data 
uh, very solid defensive player. And, and when you watch him play, he has everything you want to see out of a uh, future uh, forward who could have a top defensive impact. So he's going to be, in, in my opinion, I think he has the potential to be sort of this, like maybe not the highest offensive ceiling as far as a dynamic creator. Uh, like it, like it, I think there, he, he's going to be hard pressed to, to reach say the, you know, 60, 70, 80 points. But if he could be sort of this consistent 50-point guy who also adds star two-way ability and, and has uh, a lot of power forward instincts in terms of his size um, and, and just how he matches up uh, stylistically, then he's going to be a really, really unique player. Um, and, and he's going to be really, really highly coveted asset in Vancouver's top six. So Apod Colson signed for one more year in the KHL. Um, and then we'll see the year after. I'm, I'm sure the, the club and, and Pod Colson will both be looking for him to step immediately uh, into Vancouver's lineup. Oh, interesting. So I wonder if that affects uh, wh- whether they're willing to sign to Foley long-term because there's only so many top six spots. But I'm sure that's a, a nice problem to have, to have too many potential great assets. Uh, I want to switch over to defense now. Uh, one year after Elias Pettersson won the Calder Trophy, it's looking like Canucks will have a solid chance of taking that trophy home for the second year in a row after the outstanding rookie season that Quinn Hughes just had. Uh, going into the season, I remember Brian and I spent a lot of time debating. Like we knew that Hughes was the future top power play guy on the Canucks. We were debating like how long is it going to be before he bumps Edler from the top power play? Because like, Edler's still going to get a shot to run the top power play for a little while. And the answer ended up being like just a handful of games. Like Hughes took over that top power play QB job very quickly and he ran with it. By the time of the pause, which is now the end of the season, he was leading all rookies, not only defensemen, but all rookies in scoring with 53 points in 68 games. That's a 64-point pace as a rookie defenseman. So unbelievable. Uh, those 54 points tied him for fourth amongst all defensemen in the league in points behind only John Carlson, Roman Yosi, and Victor Hedman. He was tied with D'Angelo. And uh, to be fair, his Calder competitor, Kale McCarr, was actually only three points behind and played 11 fewer games. So you could say that McCarr was actually a bit stronger offensively and Dougie Hamilton got injured. But anyways, he was right up there among the top defenseman scorers in the league. So I guess my question about Hughes is kind of going to be similar to what I asked about Pedersen. Like, we know he's great, but like, how great is this guy? Like, if he can pace for over 60 points as a 20-year-old, what kind of ceiling should we be expecting? I think he has no risk trophy upside, personally. Like, to me, if, if he improves his in-zone defense... Um, I mean, you see it in the offensive numbers, 64-point pace at, at 20 years old. Uh, that alone is is enough to turn heads. And, and obviously, as he becomes more confident, learns the league, uh, and 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 becomes uh, and becomes more accustomed to to kind of the pace of things, um, that upside is only going to increase. So for me, I see that, and and most impressively, I look at uh, the type of year that he had. There were two things that stood out to me. One was the fact that, and obviously this is aside from the the gaudy point totals. One was just how few mistakes he made, and that speaks to his maturity in in terms of his, in terms of his decision making how he manages risk to reward. There were only a few instances where he made an egregious turnover that led to a goal against or, um, or, or, or had a real defensive breakdown. And, and that's despite him being this undersized rookie offensive defenseman going up against the opposition's best players in that shutdown role, right? Like he, he amassed, uh, once Edler went down with injury, he took over that role playing along, alongside Chris Tanev um, matching up against the Connor McDavid's and the Nathan McKinnons of the world, then he did not look out of place at all. And and when you look at even his five one five two way impact, uh, it was it was outstanding. And and those two things for me, the the two way impact that he had, 
um, in, in driving play in the right direction and, and helping the club outshoot and, and outchance their opponents um, and, and, and limiting mis- just how many mistakes he made while creating that much offensively. Uh, that, 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 that's exceptional. And, and for him to do that as a rookie, I, I, I firmly believe that he's going to challenge for Norris trophies in his prime. Man, so the Canucks, I mean, again, you could say bad things about some trades and free agent signings, but considering they got Pedersen and Hughes, and we're not talking about first overall picks here, like fifth and I think eighth for Quinn Hughes. So yeah, some, fifth and seventh. Yeah, amazing. Like such gems. Uh, what do you think is going to happen first? Uh, what, what has a better chance of happening? Pedersen winning the Art Ross or Hughes leading all defensemen in scoring? Ooh, I'd say, I'd say... That's a really good question. Um, to me, I, I'd say Hughes, uh, leading defenseman um, in points, because McDavid and, and Drysaddle right now, they're in their early 20s. This is going to be their statistical prime. Uh, so for Pedersen, I think it's going to take uh, a few years before he can realistically challenge. For, uh, for Hughes... I think John Carlson, he led defenseman in, in points this year. He's, what, 30 years old? So um, in similar sort of thing with Yossi, where he's in his late 20s. So not to say that these guys are going to be on the decline, but you might not see them continue to continue to post career highs uh, in their point totals. And so to me, there's a lot less competition when it comes right. to uh, the back end. And, and, and to me, I think if I were a betting man, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd wager on Hughes. But, uh, I mean, who knows? Both guys could could uh go out and and, and accomplish uh, accomplish that who knows maybe even in the same year one of uh one of these campaigns yeah i guess they would help each other to get all of those points for sure yeah i guess with connor mcdavid in the league it's hard to predict anyone else winning a art ross trophy uh okay so aside from hughes on defense i guess they have edler they have tyler myers who i guess we know what they are at this point uh the rest of the d isn't like especially exciting i was reading your article like rebuilding the canucks defense eight defensemen to target in free agency and you started it by saying Pick a metric, any metric, and it'll suggest the 2019-20 Canucks were one of the five most permissive defensive teams in the NHL. So again, a lot of uh, parallels with that Winnipeg interview I recently did, uh, where maybe their defense could be improved. Uh, do you think that they're going to go into free agency? I guess we're already, you know, they have to get Markstrom. We're talking about maybe Toffoli. Do you think that they also have a plan to get a defenseman in free agency to bolster things or i do have a couple of like prospect guys that i'm wondering if they're going to come in but what's your general sense of what their plan is for defense yeah that's that, that's a big challenge because chris tan of uh the club's going to be in tough to to resign him just financially unless they want to let to fully go and, and even that that may not be the most prudent decision given where tan is at in his career given sort of his injury history as well uh, and, and so the challenge for the Canucks is they have to get both cheaper and better on the back end. And when you, when you consider just how hard blue line talent is to identify um, and find outside of the draft, particularly top four talent, it's going to be a, a monumental task. And so I look at a lot of the options in free agency. And, and, and when I wrote that piece, I think the, the main takeaway was uh, aside from sort of these cheap depth options that they could pursue, there aren't a lot of guys um, at, at the high end. When you talk about Travis Hamannick or Tyson Berry, that seem like realistic fits, um, even if they did have the cap space to afford them. So from my perspective, um, it's, it's anyone guess uh, as to what they will do. I think they're going to be challenged to change much on the blue line. If I'm being completely honest, I think, uh, 
Uh, I think they're going to have to bank on Hughes getting better and um, and internal development from someone like Brogan Rafferty stepping into the lineup and, and sort of um, taking uh, taking a step because uh, it's always tough to attract defensive talent and um, to do it while you're also trying to shed salary. It's uh, it's going to be a challenge to say the least. Yeah, for sure. Like, I guess if they had unlimited room, they could get like Barry and Petrangelo and they'll be set. But yeah. it's not that easy. Uh, yeah, but a couple of guys I wanted to ask you about. First of all, we've been talking about how great they've done a drafting. They got Besser 23rd overall in 2015, Pedersen in 2017, Hughes 7th in 2018. Uh, there was a guy in the middle there in 2016, the fifth overall pick, Ole Ulevi, who I guess is an exception at this point for all these amazing draft picks. He hasn't yet played for Vancouver. He spent the last couple of years in Utica when he's been healthy. I see he hasn't played too, too many games. This past season, he played 45 games, had 25 points in the AHL. Do you think Ole Levy is like a, a bust at this point, or do we expect that he's going to get a shot with the Canucks soon? And is he someone that we should have on our radars that he could make some sort of an impact? Well, he's certainly going to continue to be on Vancouver's radar, but uh, the, the way I see it, I mean, I watched him play in the AHL. Um, he's got a long ways to go. Um, there, there just isn't... When it comes to his foot speed, it's, uh, it's a big concern as, as far as how he gets beat wide. Um, and his mobility, because of all the injuries he suffered, has, and because of the weight gain in terms of just bulking up from his junior year, he's a much worse skater than he was um, when he was initially drafted. And, and the, you look at the speed and skill game of the NHL, it's going to be in tough to adjust to that. So from my perspective, I, I, mean, I mean, if I were to guess, I'd, uh, I'd say he's going to have uh, difficulty cracking a top four role in the in, in the long run whether he whether or not he can become an nhl talent i could i could conceivably see that uh but there are a lot a lot of things that need to go right for him um at this stage and, and for him 22 years old um obviously a little too early to completely write him off but he's also at the age where i mean 22 years old uh, when you think about guys like you know ben hot Derek Pouliot that this fan base has already seen we had these same conversations. 22 years old, is Ben Hutton going to improve? 23 years old, is Derek Pouliot going to improve? And, and most of the time, the answer is no. These guys, when they um, hit 22, 23, there isn't, uh, in most cases, uh, a whole lot of room to grow. Now with Yulavi, it is a little bit different because he's missed so much time. Um, and so maybe you see a little bit more rapid development, but that's what he's going to need if, you, if he wants to make it in the NHL. Right. Okay. A little bit of a bummer, but I guess you can't hit all of your draft picks. And yeah, good thing they were able to get Quinn Hughes with that seventh overall pick. That would be a very different, much scarier situation for the Canucks D if they didn't have Hughes in the picture. And we know that he'll be there and and lead the team. Uh, I guess there is another guy who you wrote an article saying that he could be in the top four. You wrote why Canucks prospect Jack Rathbone has the potential to be a top four NHL D-man. He was a fourth round pick back in 2017, 95th overall. This past season, he played for Harvard University, 16 points in 16 games. So that's pretty good. Do you think that he's going to be someone coming in soon that people should be paying attention to? Absolutely. And uh, to me, I think at this point, he's um, the, the better prospect than O'Leal Levy, certainly among a lot of the, the people that I've had conversations with scouts. Um, they, they've expressed similar uh, sentiment. Uh, I look at his year in Harvard and really the game that, uh, that uh, Rathbone has it's it, it suits the modern direction of this game. It's it's all about for him transition. It's about skating. It's about 
getting the puck up the ice quickly, distributing to forwards, making an impact offensively. And, and, and just the way I see him play, very aggressive. Almost, he, he's always putting the opposition on their heels. And just the pace that he plays at, it, to me, I think he's going to be someone who adjusts well to how quick the NHL is. Because that's one of the biggest challenges that prospects face is when the intensity, when the pace of play increases, how are they going to adapt? And to me, Rathbone has the skill set to do that. Uh, the question with him is going to be whether or not, like we talked about with, with Quinn Hughes, how he limits mistakes. Can Jack Rathbone limit mistakes? Because right now at the NCAA level, you do see instances where he's skating himself into trouble from time to time, uh, forcing passes sometimes in the offensive zone. Uh, there are risks uh, with with his game. And there's another undersized defenseman, um, just as far as his in-zone coverage, uh, winning battles along the wall, uh, along the corner boards, he's going to have to get uh, stronger um, and, and add some ball to his body. So those are just two two of the elements that he needs to improve on to uh, being to be an impact NHL contributor. Uh, but again, I see a lot in in his ability to skate, in his ability to, to transition the puck, um, in 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 just the capacity that he has to um, add offensive pop. Uh, I'm I'm bullish on his upside. Do you think we'll see him joining the Canucks uh, next season, or at least taking a shot at training camp? Uh, I think we're a little. That's maybe a little bit too premature. But w- when I see Rathbone's game again, for for those two reasons, uh, I think he's going to be someone who you need to uh, wait a little while and, and let him marinate in the minors for for a year or two, just so that he can become someone who uh you you trust to play a regular shift at even strength i mean you don't want to bring him in as as just a power play specialist who plays limited minutes uh so for that reason um i think he's best served to start um in Utica. that's of course if he signs he could go back uh for another year at harvard and and of course uh, the question if he does do that is going to be whether or not uh he's actually going to sign because college players of course can as adam fox has done um, as Jimmy VC has done before, both Harvard alumni, uh, they can pick their uh, destinations um, once they once they reach a certain age. So that's going to be something to watch for with Rathbone. I don't think he's quite there uh, with regards to graduating, but uh, I don't think he's too far off either. Okay, interesting. So I guess another guy for us to have on our radar, and if he's going to be another Adam Fox, then that would be pretty amazing. But I guess we don't want it to be another Adam Fox in terms of not signing with his team. We want it to be the other way. Uh, so Harmon, this has been awesome. The time has just flown by. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge about the Canucks. Before I let you go, one question we've been asking to all of the beat writers that have been so kind to come on for these interviews. Uh, if you had to pick one Canuck that you think is going to be the biggest like positive surprise next season, someone who maybe in a fantasy sense you know people might not be expecting too too much from and then he'll really like exceed expectations and then on the other end one connect that you think will be the biggest disappointment that people are really excited about that maybe won't be as good as people think who would your picks be Ooh, it's tough because in vancouver everything's so heavily scrutinized that uh i mean it's the same thing with a lot of these unsung hero team awards i mean it feels like everyone in on the team just with the coverage they sort of get the due recognition um, uh, I, I think the, the, the one that stands out to me as far as maybe not living up to what he's produced this, he, this year is perhaps Jake Vertanen. And again, I mentioned some of those red flags mm-hmm. a little bit before. Um, if, if you gave me the over-under on 20 goals, uh, and, and we did, uh, we did uh, an athletic fan survey, uh, and this was one of the questions about this a couple months ago, 
uh, the over under, uh, I think it was two thirds of fans took, took the over. Um, and for me, I'd take the under. Um, I think he's much more likely to be sort of uh, in the 15, 16, 17 goal range. Uh, moving forward, uh, something closer to uh, a high 30s, maybe knocking on the door of 40 points pace, which is a slight drop from what he's shown this past year. And again, I just think his shooting percentage is 13 or 14 percent. Uh, and, and he obviously had, um, the benefit of playing with, uh, with Elias Pedersen for, for parts here and there throughout the year. And if Toffoli resigns, to me, that's a big question because if Toffoli resigns, then I think Vertanen is going to find it tougher to actually crack top six minutes here and there. And that's where maybe he could disappoint production wise. As for someone who could surprise positively, perhaps, I mean, there, there isn't really one that stands out. Maybe Tyler Myers. Um, I don't think mm. he's going to be a huge, huge producer, but um, there were some signs in his underlying profile that he could be in line for um, a, a modest boost. Again, low shooting percentage. Um, a lot of stuff in his underlying profile that suggests he was a little unlucky. Again, I don't think he's going to be. A, I don't think he's going to be a forty-point guy per se, but I think you will see a see a slight uptick in his production. Um, Maybe Antoine Roussel is a bounce-back candidate. But again, both those are kind of depth guys from a fantasy perspective. So honestly, I, I think when you look at Vancouver's top six, anyone in there is a, is a pretty reasonable bet, but they've already kind of broken out. So uh, tough to say who's really going to surprise. Yeah, that's fair. Though Tyler Myers, you do bring up a good point with him. Like, yeah, he's not going to be a 40-point guy, but all of his time in Winnipeg, he at least paced for 30 points. He had a couple of years where he was like 36, 37, and then this past season, only 21 points in 68 games for a 25-point pace. So if you're saying that the underlying numbers indicate that maybe he got a little unlucky, then yeah, once a, a defenseman starts getting into the 30s, that's someone to at least have on your radar in some yeah. fantasy formats. Uh, okay, so yeah, thanks again so much for joining and sharing all of your expertise. Uh, people should obviously be following you on Twitter at Harmon Dial too. Any uh, explanation for why did just someone else have Harmon Dial? Yeah, yeah. And then two is the uh, birth date um, that uh, that I obviously have. So uh, well, why not two? Right. Sure. <laughs> the second Harmon Dial. I wonder who is this guy. I don't know. I I couldn't even see. <laughs> You're obviously the most famous Harmon Dial. And then obviously people should be reading your articles on The Athletic. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes. Is there anything else you want people to check out that you're working on? Uh, no, that's uh, that's about it. I think um, I've got a couple of exciting projects coming up, a couple of uh, nationally focused pieces. So uh, definitely keep an eye on that. I've got something on puck moving defensemen. But uh, other than that, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much again for joining. Have a good rest of your night and good luck to the Canucks if they have this playing series against the Wild, though. Actually, should I say good luck? Because, I don't know, some people are wondering if it's better to lose and get a chance at Lafreniere. Yeah, depends on who you ask. I guess it's at least a nice consolation prize if they yeah, lose. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win. You, you either advance or uh, you get a shot at, uh, at the number one overall pick. Yeah, what a wild situation. Okay, so yeah, thanks again. And uh, really appreciate all the time you gave me. For sure, anytime. Thanks so much again, Harmon, for that amazing interview. I really enjoyed talking through the Canucks roster. This team is going to have a very interesting summer, right? Like uh, with Toffoli and Markstrom. I am very curious to see what they're going to do or if they go after someone else. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and still supporting us through our 31 Beats series. I've been having a lot of fun talking to all of these smart people. And of course, I'm only able to do it because of the listeners of the podcast that make it clear that they like this kind of thing. So if I haven't heard from you, I'd love to uh, hear what you think. So tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. 
with your feedback. If you want to support the show, we do have our Patreon where we have our summer promotion going. So any amount, a dollar a month, and we'll get you in our patron-only Facebook group. And we're going to do a patron cast next Wednesday. It is scheduled where we answer all the questions that the patrons sent us. Brian will be with me for that. And it's always a lot of fun. So come on in. Keepingcarlson.com slash patron. But with that, let's cue the outro music. And I'm going to go ahead and read you the credits. This episode of Keeping Carlson was presented by Dabber Hockey, like I said, and supported by our patrons. Also, like I said, logos by Brandon Weeb, outro music that you're listening to right now by Pat Roach. And this episode was researched with help from Dabber Hockey, Elite Prospects, Roto World, Hockey Reference, Cap Friendly, and The Athletic, specifically the articles on The Athletic, written by Harmon Dial and Harmon himself. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. I'm hard at work trying to get more beat writers to complete this series, so stay tuned, make sure you're subscribed, and until the next one, keep on keeping Carl Sand.